Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. All right, um, good evening, everybody, and welcome to this event in which we would like to answer the question, does language control us? Now, when we speak of language, we might be referring to any of the 7,000 or more languages that are spoken in the world today, many of which, in fact, most of which are indigenous languages of one country or another. And so um, I'd like to start by giving a shout out to the Sydney language, the language that was spoken here in this area before the arrival of Europeans, the Eora dialect to the east of here, the Darug dialect to the west of here. Um, we linguists like to think of these dialects and these languages as we acknowledge those um, who spoke and speak indigenous languages on this land. So tonight we have a panel of four speakers. I'm Nick Enfield. I'm a professor of linguistics here at the University of Sydney and I direct the Sydney Centre for Language Research, which is a newly established centre here at this university. I'm joined by Aim Sinpeng here in the front, you will hear from her in a moment, who lectures in comparative politics in the Department of Government and International Relations. Aim researches the role of social media in shaping state-society relations and inducing political and social change. Please welcome Aim Sinpeng. Joe Archuli is a psychologist of language in the Faculty of Health Sciences and is a stream leader in the Centre for Disability Research and Policy. She leads the Language, Brain and Mind node of the Sydney Centre for Language Research and her research on child development spans linguistics, psychology, neuroscience, speech pathology and education. Please welcome Joe Archuli. And Mark Steers is director of the Sydney Policy Lab and is an expert in democratic theory and the history of ideologies and social movements. He was recently professor of political theory at the University of Oxford, having returned to academia after a three-year stint as chief speechwriter to the UK Labor Party. Please welcome Mark Steers. Now, language is sometimes viewed as a window on the mind but it's equally a tool, a weapon, or perhaps most accurately, a remote control device. Are we controlled by language? We are gonna look at this question uh, tonight in terms of linguistics, psychology, artificial intelligence, and political discourse. Now here's how tonight's gonna to work. Uh, each of the four of us are going to uh, give you some insight into our own perspective on this question, and we'll each speak for five minutes or so, and then we'll move to panel discussion up here on the stage. Um, and one final thing that I would like to mention, we've got a little bit of an issue with the advancer here, um, is that we have a language warning. So in at least one of the talks this evening, you will hear some extremely rude and possibly offensive words. So if you're um, offended by rude and possibly offensive words, uh, you might consider um, leaving now. <laughs> All right, good. So I'm going to start, and I'll start with something called the Stroop effect. This is John Ridley Stroop, who worked in Nashville in the 1930s on questions of interference in human thinking. 
And in his most famous experiment, um, I'm going to ask you to act as participants in this experiment, he gave some fairly simple tasks to his, um, to his subjects. So here would be um, the first one. Your task is quite simple. All you have to do is look at these shapes and name the colours that you see one by one uh, as quickly and as accurately as you can. Ready? Go. Purple, green, blue, brown, purple, brown, blue, red. Okay, so people are really good at this task. It's not very hard. It only takes us about a half second uh, to name each colour and we can do it fairly accurately. Now, next, if I just get you to read out the words for colours, you can do this even more quickly and even more accurately. People are very good at this task. You can just read them out, purple, green, brown, etc. Um, and so Stroop found that people are very good at both of these tasks, but he was interested in what would happen if we put the two tasks into competition. Um, so your task now is to look at these words and treat them just as you did the shapes in the first uh, part of the uh, experiment. So ignore the words, just name the colours. So I'd ask you to do the same as you did before, quickly and accurately, moving from left to right. Are you ready? Go. Blue, brown, red, brown, purple, green, brown, red, green, purple. Okay. It's not easy, right? Um, so Stroop showed that there's this very strong um, interference that uh, occurs in this effect. It's now well known as the Stroop effect. Uh, and with interference, it takes us twice as long to name the colours. Uh, even with training, it's almost impossible to overcome this effect. So if you're an undercover Russian spy and I've caught you, uh, you can deny that you're able to read these words, but if I run a Stroop test on you, then you'll find uh, that it's impossible to bluff your way through and you'll be caught out. So the Stroop effect is one way in which language can control us in a quite direct sense. It can slow us down, it can distract us, it can mess with our heads. So now let me show you another way in which language can mess with our heads, and this is called verbal overshadowing. Now, experiments have shown if I ask you to study this colour and remember it uh, so that you would be able to pick it out from an array of colours later, people are not bad at this task. We're pretty good at remembering very precise colours. But if I ask you while you're remembering it to label it with a basic term, for example, green or blue, then what we find is that people's use of language actually overshadows their memory of what they saw. It's as if it erases some aspect of the experience that they had. So people who labelled that with the uh, word green will remember it as closer to green than it actually was, and those who labelled it with blue will remember it as closer to blue than it actually was, even though everybody saw the exact same colour. So this is what I mean by verbal overshadowing. By the very act of naming an experience, we erase information from our own memory of that experience. So if you ever find yourself needing to remember something that's difficult to put into words, for example, a perpetrator's face, don't put it into words. That way you will remember it better. Now, in the example of an ambiguous colour, we get a glimpse of the flexibility of language. So one colour, we can give it two different labels. 
And in reality, we usually have many more possibilities than just two labels. In fact, language gives us infinite latitude for describing the things that we experience. So if we look at this image, what do we see? Are they dolphins? Are they mammals? Are they performers? Well, they could be all three, right? All three descriptions could be true of what we're seeing here. But with each description, I make you think differently about what you're seeing. Now, what about this? What's Van Gogh depicting here? Is it a moonlit night? Is it a wheat field with crows? Is it some tracks through farmland? Well, some of you know the title of this painting. The middle one is the label, the title that Van Gogh gave to the painting. And so when he calls it a wheat field with crows, he's directing our attention to certain things in the image and not to certain other things. He's getting us to notice certain things and not other things, to remember certain things and not other things. And notice that we let ourselves get controlled by language in this way. We're quite happy uh, for Van Gogh to tell us what to focus on. It's his prerogative. He created this image and he knows what it is that he wants to portray. But usually, we're describing things that exist independent of ourselves, not things that we created. And so here's a problem. When I describe something to you, such as an incident that happened on my morning commute, I'm acting like Van Gogh, as if it's my prerogative to foreground certain things, background certain other things, get you to notice this and not that, erase certain things that happened. And indeed, we can't not do this with language. Language requires us to frame reality in a certain way. It gives us the power to do that. And with that power comes responsibility. It raises ethical questions about what we're doing with language when we describe the things that we've seen and experienced. Now, I want to illustrate this with one last example from the language of news reporting about domestic violence. Here's a headline from the Times about an incident that took place in the UK last month. It says, schoolboys died in cliff fall with father after he lost faith in God. What are the editors of this newspaper chosen to foreground with this description? Where do they want us to look? How are they controlling our interpretation? We often don't ask these questions, but we should, because we don't always know what's been erased. Well, here we can see it by comparing the Times headline with this headline from the BBC describing the exact same incident. Man stabbed wife before killing sons. Now, neither of these descriptions is false, but they're not just alternative ways of describing the scene. I want to say that one of them is better. The facts that the Times leaves out of its headline are as horrifying as they are central to the story. A man killed his wife by stabbing her 60 times. She had defensive wounds on her hands and arms. He then drugged their two young sons, aged seven and 10, took them to a clifftop and either pushed them off or dragged them off with him. Now, what about the editors at the Times? Was it their prerogative to say that the boys died rather than that they were murdered? Not to say that a woman died in the incident, also murdered? Nor that the father in the headline was the killer? No, that's not their prerogative because certain things must not be erased. This is the rationale behind recent efforts to draw attention to the wrongful use of language. This is from Jane Gilmore's website project called Fixed It. 
Now, headlines like these need fixing because, frankly, their authors have been ethically negligent with language. They abuse the power of language in their choice of words, which in turn controls our interpretation of the reality that they're meant to describe. When you read somebody's description of something, your interpretation is being controlled by their words. And when you describe something, you control their interpretation. And not only that, through effects like verbal overshadowing, you potentially overshadow and change your own beliefs about the things you're talking about. So yes, language can control us in unseen but consequential ways. And so as users and as consumers of words, we have a duty to use them both mindfully and ethically. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for coming today. Um, my name is um, Sin Peng, and I'm a political scientist. I work mostly on social media and have, um, in the past few years, started to dabble into artificial intelligence. So I'm taking a really different approach than Nick. But before I start, I'd like to share with you a little story. So Charlene is the mother of two teenage sons. She's divorced. Um, she got divorced when the boys were little, so she didn't have much time to date. So at the age of 47, she decided to, for the first time, um, venture into the exciting world of online dating. You're like, what could it be? <laughs> could be so many things. Online dating. So her friend said, come on, let's do it. You've got nothing to lose. You haven't dated in like 20 years. Let's do it. So she said, OK, why not? Sure. So she created a profile on an, uh, one of the popular dating app sites. Many of you know um, and have used. Uh, it's like funny, right? Because it's like a totally normal thing now. And it wasn't when I was a kid. Um, so she, for the past six months, she'd been dating this guy named Nate. And Nate is the guy in his early 50s. He's from the UK. Um, for her, he seemed pretty, he's divorced too. And for her, he seemed, you know, understated. He's honest and humble, and, but wit witty and, and funny too. He made her laugh. She realized that when she chats with him, she gets all giggly and warm. She falls in love with Nate. But Nate is not even human. Basically, Charlene fell in love with a chatbot. Nate is a bot. In fact, bots are everywhere. Uh, bots are very commonly found on online dating apps. But if you think about it, the, um, there's an estimate that all online traffic is produced two-thirds by bots. So you're probably chatting to a bot at some point in your life, probably today, right? If you think about Siri or Google Home Assistant, so any of the voice call assistant, virtual assistants, the chat live sessions you have with your banks and uh, telcos, I can't wait for Centrelink to hire some bots because I have been waiting on a phone for an hour and a half today to talk about my showercast subsidies. So, you know, you all have had interactions with bots, possibly today, am I right? In some form or the other. So the question I'd like to ask today is, do bots control us? 
Yes! <laughs> I think so, more than we realize. And here's three reasons why. One, we think of, well, before I started recent, we usually think of bots or a software robot as subservient to us. They're there to assist virtual assistants, customer service assistants. In the online world, they're like the foot soldiers of the internet, and we are the generals. We command them, but we actually don't, right? So three reasons. One, we think that they're helping us make decisions, but in fact, they're now making decisions for us, right? So I have a Google Home Assistant, which my husband bought for me for Christmas because I mentioned to him that I need help. But what I meant is that I needed help from him. <laughs> <laughs> but he bought me a Google Home Assistant. I said, no, I want you to do dishes, not Google Home. OK, fine. Uh, so I have a Google Home Assistant. <laughs> Thank you for your love. Um, and you know, I'm like rushing out the door because I'm late to pick up my kid again. And I'm very forgetful because I'm an academic. And, you know, forget stuff. And the Google Home said, don't go. You forget your keys. Because I had earlier informed the Google Home system that I regularly forget uh, keys, so remind me when I'm leaving. So, okay, key. So then I ran off. And then, and this is an imagined scenario because it's coming. It's not available in Australia yet. And Google Home assistants in the US can tell you, hey, it looks like you're running out of milk tomorrow. Um, you can pick up a three liter milk and hey, peanut butter is on sale for $1.99 at Woolies. So you can get your three liter milk and a peanut butter for $5.99 at Woolies. Would you like that? Yes! It's programmed, it's sent to Woolies, it's paid, and it's ready for pickup, and it's sending me messages to remind me as I'm driving close to my local Woolies. This is actually happening now with Google Homes in the US and Alexa through Amazon. And Woolies right now is trying to make it work in Australia. So the point is, I was even wanting to buy milk or peanut butter five minutes ago. And now it's bought, it's paid for, it's ready for pickup, and I haven't even had time to catch my breath, right? So it's making choices for me, which is great on this front because I kind of need I don't actually like peanut butter, so I don't know why I said yes, but I kind of need milk. <laughs> so um, second point was that bots actually make us, bots make us believe things that aren't even true. And some people have died from it. So um, you may have heard of recent news of a string of lynchings in India in the past year. So up to 50 people have died from lynchings. And a number of rights groups and investigative journalists have argued that bots were actually partly behind these WhatsApp messages that are being sent, uh, false information and false images that have then led to these lynchings. In Myanmar, many of you have heard of the ongoing, insidious, incessant campaigns, hate speech campaigns on Facebook, against ethnic minority Rohingyas, which UN representative had called our current genocide, that bots play a critical role in disseminating not just false information, but false information actually led to deaths right, and burning alive. 
So that's the second way but us make us think of things that aren't even true. Thirdly, bots, I argue, that change the way we perceive reality. Have you heard of Sync Technology Corp? If you haven't, it's okay, because most of us haven't. I actually hadn't until recently. So Sync is a tech company. It has one employee, the CEO, the founder, and CFO, and he's got all the positions in the company. His name is Mario Sanchez. It has no address, no asset, and no, no money, no revenue. The website of the company barely works. But in 2014, its uh, share price went from 10 cents to $20 in a matter of hours. And the company suddenly was worth $5 billion. How did this happen? Well, the CEO was clever. He orchestrated a Twitter bot campaign, spreading false information that the share price of his stocks are about to go up. The campaign went viral, and a number of traders have picked up uh, this conversation on Twitter and started buying up stocks of this company. They kept buying and buying and buying, and the value went up really quickly overnight. And by the time the analysts realized that the information was not only false, but was produced by bots, they have lost millions of dollars. Right? And that's several years ago already. So bots have gotten smarter since then. So that's the third way that bots actually change the way we see reality. So the question then is, how did we get here? How do we get to a point in society where bots are influencing our choices? And the answer is human language. And the answer is language because bots and all robots and are, are run on human languages. Right. Basically, all advances in artificial intelligence and machine learning start with first understanding human languages, understanding how we talk. They're fed databases of all these words to learn so that they can better mimic our behavior and act like us and talk like us and understand the emotions and the context in which words are used. It actually, bots are actually so good now that in Japan, uh, there is a growing industry called romance gaming and romantic partners, virtual partners. So a growing number of people in Japan are actually preferring to date robots than dating humans. I'm serious. There's actually a Dateline documentary on SBS you can watch about dating robots in Japan. It's growing as well outside of Japan. That's how good, how human-like robots have got. They're better than us at this point. So I'd like to end my talk by giving you a final thought. Bots are actually computer scripts written by humans, right? Our brainy devices are designed by humans. And we can design brainier and brainier devices because we're curious. But how far are we willing to let our curiosity go before they control us and limit our freedom to think? Thank you. Okay, my name is Jo Archuli and it's lovely to be here with you tonight. 
Um, as we've seen from the, um, the last two great talks, this question of whether language controls us can be explored in a number of ways. I would like to suggest that one way we can explore this question is through the context of taboo words. What are taboo words, you might ask? Well, you're about to find out, if you don't already know. And in case you were wondering which talk the language warning <laughs> was describing, we, we have arrived. So, are you ready for this? According to an American study published in 2015, the top 10 taboo words are fuck, shit, bitch, cunt, asshole, ass, damn, motherfucker, slut, and whore. So how do these words make us feel? How do they make you feel? Shocked? Uncomfortable? Maybe a few of us feel a bit embarrassed and giggly. Uh, the point is that we notice these words. We really notice them. A 2016 Ofcom study in the UK asked adults about taboo words in order to establish a kind of barometer of offensive language. So the most offensive culprits, as you might expect, were words like fuck and cunt. Slightly less offensive words were Bastard, dickhead, prick, pussy, and twat, or twat, depending on how you say that word. Of particular interest to me, because my brother had a disability and because I do a lot of research in the area of disability, the Ofcom study looked at mental health and disability-related taboo words. So quite a change from the other sorts of taboo words I've just mentioned. Supposedly mildly offensive words in this category included loony, nutter, and psycho. Words with medium levels of offensiveness included midget, schizo, and vegetable. The word cripple was considered strongly offensive. The strongest words, highly unacceptable at all times, included mong, spastic, and the R word. I think you'll agree that some of us use these words without even realizing that they ostracize and diminish people with disabilities. So do these words control us? Well, yes and no. It's true that taboo words are highly salient stimuli for our brains. So for example, people who can speak more than one language generally express a preference for swearing in their first language. Why, we don't know, but it is clear that upon first learning these words, they become highly salient. And anyone who's been to a four-year-old's birthday party has probably come across poo-bum-fart-wee jokes, often delivered at top speed while running away from the reaction. Beyond developmentally predictable usage of taboo words, involuntary swearing or difficulty controlling swearing, has been associated with certain forms of brain damage or deterioration and conditions such as Tourette's, among others. So all of this evidence suggests that the brain deals with taboo words differently from other words. And anyone who's experienced some kind of verbal abuse will tell you that these words are very powerful. My first experience of verbal abuse was when I was a teenager 
working in one of my very first jobs. A certain manager would surprise me every now and again by issuing directives like, polish the stainless steel, you fucking bitch. Of course, he didn't ever say things like that out loud so that others might hear. Rather, he would get very close to me and almost whisper it in my ear. This language had a very powerful effect on me. It shocked me and it belittled me. And it made me absolutely terrified of him because I could never know when he was going to have one of his outbursts. So in this sense, these words did control me. And it might be of interest to some here tonight to know that certain taboo words are considered so powerful in a negative way that there are campaigns trying to raise awareness and discourage people from using them altogether. So, for example, campaigns against the R word have been instigated by individuals with disabilities and their communities all around the world. According to our very own Australian website, therword.com.au, and I encourage you to check it out, the R word appears on social media approximately once every five seconds, very frequently. And this is a direct quote from the website. The R word is considered incredibly offensive, hurtful, and demeaning. So these words are powerful, but do they control us? What if the opposite is true? Can we in fact harness the power of these taboo words to suit our own purposes? Consider these examples. Swearing seems to increase tolerance to pain. I don't know about you, but if I stub my toe or have some sort of uh, minor physical accident, I swear a lot. It seems to help. And scientists have looked into this. Um, generally, they'll ask people to tolerate pain in the form of putting their hand in a bucket of ice cold water, for example. So some people are told they can swear. Other people are told to use neutral words. And the swearing does seem to increase pain tolerance. Here's another example. Taboo words can bring us together. They can be very entertaining when delivered by performers like, say, Billy Connolly or Judith Lucy. In this context, taboo words serve to heighten the speaker's perspectives for comedic effect, and they also signal to the audience that formality has been abandoned, as if the speaker were among friends. Another example, taboo words have sometimes been reclaimed by minority groups. Think of a word like wog. In the Australian context, this derogatory term was often applied to Italian and Greek immigrants and their families. Yet the term has now been adopted by some Greek and Italian Australians as a positive marker of identity. If you're on Twitter, check out the hashtag CripTheVote. Despite cripple being strongly offensive, disability advocates have reclaimed a variant of this word to highlight issues which affect disabled people during election campaigns. And I'll finish with a final example of our power over taboo words by emphasising our incredibly creative usage of these terms. So take, for instance, the excretory expletive shit. Here are just a few examples of creativity. We're in deep shit. They were absolutely shit-faced last night. This party is shithouse. Shit, yeah. What the shit is going on? Are you shitting me? I shit you not. 
We also talk about shitloads of work, shit hitting the fan, being bored shitless and not giving a shit. And I'd like to give a special mention to the imaginative extension of shit a brick, which became shittity brickity. <laughs> when delivered by Hugh Grant in the film Notting Hill. In Four Weddings and a Funeral, his character delivered the very colourful terms fuckity-fuck and fuck-a-doodle-doo. So in summing up, yes, these words are very powerful. And as we've seen, they can be used in both negative and positive ways. I would suggest that perhaps we can start working on increasing our awareness of the ways that these words can be used and perhaps start using them in more positive ways. Good evening. How good is Australia? If you have a go, you should get a go. And most importantly of all, don't you all agree? Isn't it time that we promised to fulfill the promise of Australia to all Australians? Now, you might think I've just talked absolute rubbish, but... Those are the sentences which have won a federal election for our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. <laughs> in, in a previous life, I was a, a political speechwriter, uh, and it always worried me, do I have to write like that? Yeah. <laughs> is that what politics is all about? Yeah, bizarrely, in the year 2011, the year before I became a speechwriter, my predecessor had written a speech for the leader of the UK Labour Party called Fulfilling the Promise of Britain. So it was kind of amazing when I looked at the federal election here and saw the same line, it just changed the name of the country. So, so my puzzle is, okay, why do politicians speak in this kind of language and does it control us? Um, the first thing I, I found out when I became a speechwriter was there is a science to all of this. You know, I just thought it was kind of laziness. But actually, when the opinion pollsters do their work, you know, the people who run the focus groups and the, you know, the political strategists who earn huge salaries, they go out there and they talk to people about what's going to make you want to vote for my person rather than their person, then time and time again, these slogans, which seem so ridiculous and so bland, actually poll extraordinarily well. So when I was a speechwriter, I was constantly told, well, you've got to have those lines in because the science tells us they work. Don't talk about you know, human beings, talk about hardworking families. Yeah, don't talk about you know, sort of migration questions in the open, talk about good, honest Australians and give yourself a little wink and everyone knows what you're trying to do. So there is some evidence out there that, for all of their absurdity, these slogans work. Uh, and that's why they're continuously used again and again and again by politicians and why they won't stop using them, uh, even if you think that they uh, have run their course or even if you've heard you've heard them before. But I just want to suggest that there are three reasons why we might nonetheless, even though they work, want to try to get away from slogans like this. Not just because we're bored with them or they sound a bit silly. Look, the first reason is how do you have a serious debate about concrete issues of political policy, the stuff that really matters, if all of our political discourse is actually sloganeering? I, I came in, I'm relatively new to Australia, I don't know if you could tell from my accent, but I came in on the, you know, the, the day after the first debate between Bill Shorten and Scott Morrison during the election. You know, I'd sat there and watched this thing. 
Uh, and, you know, it had been one slogan after another slogan after another slogan. I came into the office and, you know, I work in the policy lab. And I said to my colleagues, like, what did you think of the debate last night? And one of them looked at me and said, there was a debate? Yeah. Uh, nobody had watched this thing, uh, even though they're paid to do it. Yeah. And the reason is, all you're getting is slogan after slogan after slogan, and everyone knows that's what you're getting. So where are we going to have the real conversations about how high tax rates should be, how high New Start should be, what we're going to do for the, you know, all of the complex problems that confront us as a country? That's the first reason I think we should be worried about slogans. The second reason is probably slightly more profound or, or, or slightly darker, which is these slogans mask some really deeply unpleasant realities. They're not only language designed to stop us having hard conversations about fundamental facts. They're conversations or they're slogans made to make us believe that everything is all right, really. Obviously, the most sort of extravagant example of this at the moment is the language of Donald Trump. Yeah. What does make America great again mean if you're on the southern border of the United States at the moment? I don't know if any of you followed this legal case. There's a man in the United States at the moment on trial for giving water to somebody trying to immigrate into the United States stuck in the desert between Mexico and the US. Somebody who was actually in dire human need, a passerby gave them some water. The person who gave them water is on trial. In political speech, this is make America great again. George Orwell, back in the 1940s, spotted this as one of the most fundamental dangers of political life. He said, when people speak blandly, they're probably hiding great evil. And if we don't stop speaking in that grandiose, empty language, we won't be able to detect the evils that are going on. Read 1984 again if you uh, haven't read it recently. I think the third reason why it's so important that we stop doing this is that nobody else talks like that. I, I mean, have you been on a bus recently or in the library or like, you know, down the pub uh, or, you know, in school and heard someone say, you know what, if you have a go, you should get a go. <laughs> yeah? I mean, it just doesn't happen. And the consequence of that is that people think politicians are not really human, or they're not really like us, or they're living in their own world, or they're, you know, they're off floating in some separate reality. But if we start thinking like that, th then what does that make us as a democracy? If the people who are meant to be our representatives and meant to be making decisions for us, meant to be governing for us, are thought of as fundamentally different for from us, then we have a fundamental breach in the way our system is meant to work. Representative democracy is meant to be just that. When people govern, when they deliberate in parliament, they're meant to be representing us. So isn't it time that they spoke like us and thought like us a little bit more? Finally, I'll just end by saying, there is somebody in the world who's campaigning against this, so it's not a lost cause. There's an American political strategist called David Axelrod, who was the campaign manager for Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012 and who was our campaign manager in the UK Labour Party in 2015. Uh, and, and Axelrod has this wonderful slogan, paradoxically. Uh, when he, whenever he meets a political candidate, he says, I don't want you to campaign in a sentence. I want you at least to have a paragraph. Uh, and he says it because he thinks basically those three things that I've just said. If you're going to have a serious debate about policy, if you're going to be honest about some of the terrible things that are going on in the world, if you're going to make think people think politicians are just like us, they're human beings, let's try and get them to speak in this kind of language in a paragraph. 
And it sounds so easy, just a paragraph. Just end with this. A few weeks before the general election that um, I was involved in in 2015 in the UK, uh, David Axelrod flew in, flew in, you know, costs a fortune, for a meeting with our top Labour Party strategists and the leader of the party. We went to a really fancy London hotel and we all sat in the restaurant. And David Axelrod came in with his entourage, you know, he's like five or six sort of bag carriers and he sits down and he says, right, what are we going to talk about today? And the leader of the Labour Party said, well, here we got, we've got one big question for you, David. Which sounds better? A better plan for a better future or a better future with a better plan? <laughs> and that's how hard it is to change. Thank you very much. Well, I hope you um, enjoyed those um, follow-up talks as much as I did. Um, now, as I mentioned earlier, what we're now going to do is to move into conversation mode um, and work with our speakers to go back over some of these um, topics that we've just been hearing about. Um, and so perhaps I'm hot off the heels of, of, of Mark's talk. Um, as a linguist, I'm interested in what the basic functions of language really are, and, and, and you're making an appeal here to, you know, a sort of responsible, thoughtful use of language. Um, and, and I'm reminded of the, the biologists, John Krebs and Richard Dawkins, who they were putting forward a, a theory of animal communication. And they're basically arguing that animal communication is an adaptation to influence other animals. That's the fundamental sort of reason why communication systems uh, evolve. And so the, uh, uh, this is a quote from their paper. Just as a wing performs its normal function by working on the air, so a signal performs its normal function by working on another animal. <laughs> so it's a very sort of, um, you know, manipulation kind of oriented view of what the basic function uh, of, of communication is, but also by extension of, uh, of human language. So I wonder whether you think that that kind of relates to the dark side that you mentioned of, uh, of, of, of language use. And, and I mean, what would we do if we, if we decided that that really was basically what language is all about, that the kind of more thoughtful functions that you're appealing to are, are, don't really come naturally to language at all? Mm, that's amazing. <coughs> yeah, look, I, I definitely think there's a, there's a lot of darkness in politics, and that sort of Richard Dawkins' view is true. Actually, I would push it even further... And so the reason that people use the slogans that I've described um, is because they actually think that they are triggering reactions in the people who hear them, which releases things that those people already think. So they're not trying to change their mind about anything. They're signaling to them, you know that thing that you really think but you don't imagine that you can ever say? Well, I'm the person who stands up for that. You know, so you know, you know, you might be a little bit prejudiced about people on Newstart, or you might, you might like, like immigrants very much. Well, I've got a canny slogan which says that, but says it politely, so you can vote for me. And and sloganeering on the left and the right is is a little bit like that. So it's not even manipulation in the sense of trying to make people think things that they don't think. It's releasing the worst sides of what people already do think. Right. The but is, I do think I'm more optimistic, as you could tell from the talk that it doesn't have to be like that. Um, and you know, there, there, there are moments, I think we all have them in our, our lives, when you sit down with someone and you're genuinely interested in finding out what they think and teasing out their thoughts with language and using words, as Jürgen Habermas might say, like to find some common ground between you. And, and I do think that we do experience that day to day. Um, but more importantly, I think there are candidates who do it 
So in the US uh, presidential election campaign at the moment, um, Pete Buttigieg, I don't know if you have followed him, is trying to do this. Bizarrely, in the UK at the moment, the Conservative Party leadership election, there's a guy called Rory Stewart, who isn't, isn't going to win. Uh, Boris Johnson is going to win. Um, but Rory Stewart has become a phenomenon overnight by talking in paragraphs rather than sentences. So uh -huh. it can happen, but it is very countercultural. Aim, did you have a comment on that? It's so hard to happen when you're on social media. And I know this because I spend a lot of time in my job reading Facebook um, political candidates. And basically, research and research has shown that um, the more vulgar, more um, <coughs> the more anti-elite, more vulgar, more radical you sound online, the more likely your stuff's going to get shared. So. Mm false information is shared seven times faster um, than true facts. That's just one. And two, uh, the kind of outrageous language on social media is far more effective in getting engagement level from the grounds up by a lot, because people like things that are shareable. And shareable culture is things that are novel and kind of crazy. And so in some ways, in the digital world, I feel like politicians are being forced to be more radical, to speak more outrageously just to get their engagement count to go up. And that's what I fear uh, is happening right now in trying to game the online votes. So what's the antidote? So, I mean, we might argue that there's some strong forces against getting, you know, good quality discourse. There's something about the nature of language and now there's something about the 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 ecology of information, the economy of information that you're you're speaking about. So, do, I mean, are you? Is there a sliver of optimism? Do you think that it's possible <laughs> at all within in the new information, uh, the infosphere? You know, with Facebook and and Twitter and Instagram and all of these kind of you know WhatsApp and all of these engines of of sloganing, um, what to do? So I think the first step is for social media platforms to be more forceful in monitoring content and making clear to people who use them what content is acceptable. So I gather that most of you are on Facebook. How many of you actually read Facebook content policy? Please raise your hands. Oh, there we go. One. Couple people. Three. <laughs> Three. Fewer than 10. That's for one. And in fact, I was just um, in Singapore a few weeks ago with the head of um, the Facebook and Twitter Asia-Pacific offices. And they are now sending out their own staff to every single elections in the world to train politicians how to conduct themselves properly on Facebook so they don't violate Facebook's own policy. Like, First of all, they don't even know the policy exists. Then train the election commissions, and that's just like a full-time job because there's an election going on all the time. So I think just to start, tech companies can be much more progressive and proactive about enforcing their own policy on people, the majority of whom didn't even know the policy exists. All right. So what do you think about um, the possibility that, so you know, one approach would be to say, let's work with the tech companies, let's get you know, these messages or this style of message kind of under control in some sense. Um, you know, one view on that would be to say, 
sorry, but you'll never kind of put a lid on it. You know, there'll always be another way around it. Do you think it's possible to approach the problem through individuals, through the idea of growing new forms of literacy? I mean, one, one argument would be to say you can diffuse those forms of control uh, by, by people being more literate, by people being more willing to engage with the kind of uh, arguments that, that, that Mark was just advocating. I mean, do you think that's a, that's a feasible approach? Yes, but it's the long-term one. Mm -hmm. So in the meantime, we gotta we gotta get some short-term fixes and long-term fixes. And you're absolutely right. It's actually the biggest problem confronting the digital world today, because the biggest growth of the digital the the biggest growth of internet access is actually in developing countries, uh, where literacy is lower in general, but digital literacy in particular is very low. So people have this false sense of anonymity when they're online. They think they can say whatever they want and can hurt people without other people knowing who they are. Uh, and I think that does come with literacy, but in the meantime, I mean, elites, politicians are in the online language influencers. The way they conduct themselves influence the way others conduct themselves. And if they don't even know how to conduct themselves online, you know, then it's going to take a long time for the, the ordinary internet users to understand what's appropriate. Right. Um, so I'm now just interested to bring Joe into the conversation. Um, and for, for me, you know, in terms of my interest in, uh, you know, I know also yours, it, it often comes back to human psychology and, you know, the fact that, the, 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 the things that evolve and develop are things that work. And how do they work? Well, they work on you know, human minds. They work on the foibles that, that human minds have. Um, and one of the themes that kind of comes through a few of the uh, comments that we've already heard is deception. And the fact that you know, we're either being given false information or we have no way of kind of evaluating this information. Uh, and I know that's a big topic in the psychology um, of language. So what, what can you tell us about the linguistic markers of deception and whether, you know, knowing about them will give us any leverage in terms of solving these problems? I think it's a really interesting uh, topic um, and it's sort of a million-dollar question. How, how can we tell if somebody's lying to us or telling um, the truth, especially when it comes to politicians, right? That would be really nice to know. Um, and there's, there has been a lot of research in this area. Um, in my own lab, we've done a little bit of research on um, linguistic markers to deception. And uh, I'll just share with you one of the findings. So we found that the uh, humble filler word, so-called filler word, um, you know that word that people try and get you to take out of all your talks and, you know, if you're trying to appear confident, don't ever say um. Um, and whenever I start talking about this, I always increase my usage of um. The good news is that um is a marker of um, truth-telling, <laughs> more so than deception. But this is like a probabilistic relationship, not a deterministic one, so I don't want you to start counting uh, every time your friends say um or don't say um. Uh, but... This has been shown in low-stakes experiments, so where we have uh, volunteers come into the lab and we basically ask them to tell white lies. So there's not um, any dire consequences of, of deception. But a very clever PhD student of mine, Dr Gina Villa, uh, looked at this in a high-stakes context. So she looked at the speech of a, a convicted murderer uh, when he was telling the truth and when he was lying, and indeed found this um, word, um, 
occurred more frequently when he was telling the truth, which I think is very interesting. So it's like a marker of authentic language, I think, which is probably associated with truth-telling for most of us. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, I mean, uh, lying, I, mean, I keep coming back to this kind of question in my mind about truth and so forth. We've, we've done a lot of thinking about this uh, at, at, within a, an initiative I'm involved in, the Sydney Initiative for Truth. Um, and I, I want to bring back to Mark. So the, I'm curious about your experience as a speechwriter. Uh, you know, so I'd like to hear from you about the concept of oratory and we, when we look at, you know, election... Um, campaigns and, and, and we see people commenting on the sort of uh, skills of, you know, of comparing Barack Obama's soaring oratory to, you know, I don't know how to describe the way that Donald Trump talks, uh, <laughs> you know, but obviously, you know, Obama's um, speeches or, you know, a good speech writer, a good uh, speaker is going to be effective in terms of mobilising people. And, and one view is to say, well, you know, um, that's persuasion. Mm. That is, you know, that's more like being a lawyer than being a scientist. Uh, so, you know, how do you disentangle the kind of thing that you were going for uh, in, in, in your talk just earlier was to say, well, let's give people information that they can think about. Let's let them make their own decisions. But then how do you square that off against, you know, being a persuader, which is essentially, you know, I, I just want you to come around to my opinion and this is my talk. Yeah, no, I mean, this is a really profoundly difficult question. I mean, I, I think the, the key thing about speeches, I'll do speeches first and then I'll do truth-telling. The key thing about speeches is that they... I'm telling you the truth now. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the meaning of the words is actually secondary. <laughs> what, a, a great speech is much closer to a piece of music than it is to a piece of scientific text. So the, the experience of, a, of an effective speech is an emotional experience, and you go with the rhythm and the sound, first of all, but then also with a bodily reaction rather than an intellectual one. And that's the, the glory of a Martin Luther King or a Barack Obama is actually less in the, you know, the sort of precise meaning of the words and more in the flow, as she said, that word soaring gives you that sense. These are musical expressions. Great speechwriters in the US talk of them as symphonies, which need movements, they need fast bits, they need angry bits, they need slow bits, they need kind bits. And they're not about actually the content of the words, but the feeling. The best speech I ever wrote was in 2012, October 2012. Um, and the reason it worked was because about 15 minutes in, we started getting standing ovations. Uh, and so you'd get this role in the room where it's just one word, a random word almost, would set the room on its feet, stamping and cheering, and then they would settle back down. And that gave confidence to the speaker who then would carry on. And it's much more like an English football match uh, than it is a sort of seminar, <laughs> philosophy seminar. Uh, and so speeches are like that. And I don't think you could ever change that. Oratory is music and it's emotional and it's sentimental. Um, Bad speeches are boring because the speech givers don't recognize that and they're trying to tell you something factual and you know, you're not there for that, you're there for something different. The but is I think there's a different political form than the speech where you can have the reasoned, rational, concrete, proper conversation. Um, and you're good... TV discussions and debates should be like that. Really good TV interviewers can have a 40-minute or a 50-minute conversation with a politician where you can get into the details of the issues. So-called town hall meetings, the Americans are very big on this, they can be like that. 
The, the one moment when I realized Donald Trump might win the presidency was actually watching him do a town hall with women voters in New York. And he was utterly compelling at being able to have a conversation with people with whom he disagreed. You thought, oh, actually, this guy's got something, despite all the things that I hate about him. Um, so there are formats that you can have reason, debate, and discussion in, but just don't expect to have it in the speech one. The worry I have is we're stuck in this middle category which is none of the emotional resilience resource of the speech, but none of the truth-telling and the reality of these, these you know, reasoned exchanges. You know, those, those prime ministerial debates, I don't know, people might disagree, but I just thought they were terrible uh, because they, no one was discussing anything, but they certainly also weren't you know, touching you in your heart and making you want to stand on your feet and cheer. They, they were sloganeering. Yeah, you get the sense they're waiting for their moment to... Uh, produce the rehearsed line exactly. that, they, that they've been trained up on. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this visceral effect is something that I find, uh, you know, really important about this whole topic. And, and, and I, I, I want to come back to Joe's talk. Um, you know, so this idea that a speech can get people sort of emotionally engaged. Uh, you know, we know that that means that there certain hormones are being released, certain chemicals are being released, but, you know, by the body. And uh, so language of certain kinds literally affects us in these physical ways. Uh, just as you were saying that with taboo words, it affects us in these, these physical ways. And uh, it, it's been claimed recently in relation to hate speech that uh, these physical effects that language has, these forms of stress that, that language can have on our bodies, means that words are a form of violence or can be a form of violence, which you know effectively implies that Hate speech is it should be treated in the same way as as, as hitting somebody bodily. So, what are you what are your <coughs> thoughts about that? Do you think do you, do you have do you have comments on that from your point of view? I think it's very interesting to consider what we mean by hate speech, and it probably means different things to different people at different times. Um, some examples I can think of um, that might be considered by some to, to fall under that umbrella. Uh, so a word like slut um, is quite a controversial word for a lot of reasons. One reason is that it's um, very specific to females, so there doesn't seem to be a male equivalent uh, for that word. And, in fact, people who want to use that word when referring to a male will sometimes say a male slut just to indicate that they're not referring to the generic, um, you know, the default uh, gender. Um, and another reason that it's, it's become uh, controversial is in the area of um, violence against women, where some fairly um, high-profile people have suggested that if women want to avoid um, violent attacks, perhaps they should avoid dressing like a slut, for example. That's the sort of thing that you, you hear people say. Um, and, of course... Um, that's illogical and offensive uh, in many ways because, of course, the way somebody dresses is very different to uh, how you might go about obtaining uh, explicit consent. Um, and so it's interesting. Some protesters have actually... Um, I was talking about reclaiming uh, taboo words in, in my talk, and, and this can be said of the word slut as well. So some protesters have sort of reclaimed that word and so you might have heard about the slut walk, for example. So that's a protest against uh, violence against women. 
Um, not everybody agrees that that's a good approach. Some people would like that word to not be used at all, ever again. Um, so this thing about hate speech is very interesting. Um, these words are powerful. Some people choose to reclaim the words and, and diffuse their power or use their power in other ways. Um, I think another example is perhaps um, the use of pronouns. Um, this has become uh, quite important for some groups in the community. So I might um, decide that I would like people to refer to me using pronouns um, she and her, but there are other options I could choose. Um, and for some people, the way, the way that pronouns are used and the way others refer to them is, is, is very important and might even be considered a, a form of hate speech because if somebody refers to them in a way that makes them um, perhaps remember some painful experiences or, um, you know, it can be very awkward for some people. So I'm thinking of members of the trans community and non-binary individuals um, for whom pronoun use is... For some of them anyway, um, pronoun use has become very important. So even, you know, words that we don't really think twice right. about using are, are very, very powerful and important for some for some groups. Right. I just wanted to come back to AIM. Um, so the, the, what we just heard, uh, you know, and most of what we've been talking about relates to English. Uh, but at the start, you know, I mentioned that there are, of course, thousands of languages spoken around the world and... You know, all you have to do is go to a, another language and you'll find a different set of offensive words or a different set of distinctions. You might go to a language like, like Thai, for example, where you, don't, you have a pronoun system that doesn't force you to choose between uh, mm -hmm. male and female, but it forces you to choose other things like you know, sort of levels of respect and that type of thing. Um, and so, Aim, you've worked on online political discourse in Thailand uh, and surrounding countries, and of course, Thailand is a country with many different languages, including uh, indigenous languages of, of that country. So, I wondered whether you had comments on on the question of sort of language diversity and the issues that we've been discussing. So, I want to. This is a great question, and thanks for this, Nick. I want to raise two questions, um, two two issues in the current development of artificial intelligence, and which is a primary way right now and machine learning to actually figure out where hate speech is coming from online. And there's two big challenges to to trying to address hate speech online. One is language, that the internet is primarily a, a very Eurocentric environment, which means that most algorithms developed are actually in English or in a number of largely Western European languages. So Asian languages, for example, and definitely the main one, but also the minority languages, are underdeveloped in the algorithms. And, the, and the, so you need to teach the machines the languages you need to tell them what to do. But the problem is a lot of the languages in the global south are underdeveloped in that sense. So in fact, Facebook is rolling out right now a call for researchers in the what they term the low-frequency language, which is basically a lot of the languages in the Asia-Pacific, um, because they realize that they don't even have the right algorithms to monitor content, right? Uh, so I think the recognition that certain languages um, are more important online just because they're more developed and more used is critical, mm. right? Which means that other languages are much further behind when it comes to the, even the same technology. And secondly, 
Uh, men, um, I'm glad you mentioned Thai because while I was trying to do, so I was trying to train the computer to segregate words. And you know, in English, you have a sentence and you have a subject and your space and a verb and a space. And what's the third one? Uh, object. Object. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's been a while. Memories of primary school. For yeah, some yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in my language, so I'm Thai, and, and Nick actually speaks my language. Um, there's no space at all. It just goes on and 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 on. And the only reason why there's space because the page ends and you have to start again. <laughs> so there's not a lot. Of, there's very little space. In between, so in fact, you can go on and on about two different time frames and the whole the whole other subjects, and so just developing the right algorithm to space out words properly. Because, for example, uh, if you imagine uh, apple, and you can say app, it's just one word, and pole is another word, right? But it could be apple, so you don't know in this context, is it one word or is it two separate words? So just word segmentation is critical in understanding the context, and it's really underdeveloped in a lot of languages, which affects machine learning, affects algorithms, affects everything, right? So if, you know, just, just, the, just the realization of how difficult it is when we're talking about monitoring content online, in languages other than European languages is significant. There is not enough database. The algorithms that, that are developed are underdeveloped. I used it myself when the accuracy was very low. Uh, and I have, have to teach uh, the machines how to do it properly for this particular context only, right? So I think that recognition is crucial because a lot of these languages are gonna really far lag behind when it comes to algorithms and machine learning and, and the ability for social media companies to be able to monitor content in languages outside the European context. Okay. So um, that brings us to, uh, according to my watch, to the end of our um, allotted time this evening. Uh, I have really enjoyed this um, conversation and it's been wonderful to have such a great turnout. So hopefully we have provided some form of an answer to the question, does language control us? So I encourage you to continue that conversation and to uh, watch the space of Sydney Ideas and what's coming up. So uh, if you could join me in thanking Mark Steers, Aim Sinpeng and Joe Archuli. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.